One of our really, really good Pine schools, Crescent School in Toronto, talks about the notion of men of character from boys of promise. Hunter Johnson exemplifies a man of character who grew from being a boy of promise. He is CEO of The Man Cave, a charity that teaches emotional intelligence to young men. He is one of the most important figures in our country, and dare I say it, internationally right now, in helping us to think about what contemporary positive masculinity might look like, and how you can practice the way in which you articulate and speak to this in your life. He's done all sorts of things all around the world with the United Nations, back here in Australia. He was recognised as a finalist for the 2020 Young Australian of the Year Awards. According to Harper's Bazaar, he's visionary. He was a Queen's Young Leader in 2018, and along the way, he may have even had a dodgy history teacher uh, have something to do with his education when he was younger. I can't wait to talk to Hunter Johnson. I'm so excited. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. With their strategic educational development program, they seek to identify and define strategy, structures and operations for a preferred future. They support the educational aspirations of each school community through the development of a high-performance culture. To find out more about how they can help your school, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And uh, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today, my friend? Well, well, can I just say that the quinoa trees are shaking with excitement at the right. thought Hunter Johnson will soon be back prowling the streets of Fitzroy <laughs> in pursuit of the perfect cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if he's, he's had to travel down from Sydney to Melbourne and we know what the dishwater is like up in Sydney. So it'll be a, a welcome change, no doubt. Are you done? I'm pretty much done. Now, let's get to our guest. Uh, I'm really excited to have Hunter on. Uh, I've been a huge fan of the work of the Man Cave team uh, for a number of years now, and, and being someone who had worked predominantly in boys' education in my, in my last kind of school, understanding issues of young men becoming men and taking their place in society has been quite a significant part of the journey. Hunter, I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that question is, Tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Uh, well, fellas, it's exciting to be here and um, I don't want to form alliances, but I will. And uh, I spent the last eight years of my life living in Fitzroy. So I know those Kimmer trees and those hipster streets really well. Outstanding, Deprado. <laughs> Sit back in your chair and learn. Uh, well, um, guys, I think probably the starting point is I never thought I'd be running a charity that tried to democratise uh, young men talking about their feelings and their emotions and for that to be cool and normal. But um, all these years later, I think from a number of kind of crucible moments, um, although I definitely didn't have the awareness to see them as crucible moments as they occurred, um, really did shape my, my path and my, my character development through those, uh, those, those curveball moments. I think that the starting point is that I just grew up with kind of two different worlds. My mum was from as kind of a, a conservative family. My dad was from a family where he really had to earn his education. And he came from a, a really low socioeconomic area where 
education was the way out. And um, so I felt like I kind of had these two different worlds where, you know, mum was from a family that was really high performing, really values driven, really community service orientated. And my dad was, you know, from, from the Western suburbs of Sydney and really had to kind of earn his way out of the region that he grew up in. And I also grew up from my mum's side where private schooling was, you know, um, part of their education system. And, and my, my uncle um, was school captain of the school that I went to, which is called Knox Grammar, which, Phil, I think you might know a certain uh, history teacher who was involved there at some point. And so I, I kind of grew up with this narrative, like, you're going to go to Knox, you're going to be a Knox boy. And, um, you know, I, I remember my first day of year five, I was in my mum's bed crying because I didn't want to leave my primary school and all my mates. And, you know, I got kind of nudged out the door and, you know, and I, and I love my time at Knox. Knox, the model for Knox really worked for me, which was, you know, a kid who was confident, who, you know, like to kind of test boundaries, but also love sport. And I think for me personally, I also got lost in the system. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I tried to find my identity by um, pushing boundaries, pushing back on teachers and um, to the detriment of my own values a lot of the time. And, you know, feel the irony of us having this conversation here is that I think I was having a very different conversation in your office when I was 14 years old and on a daily report card around, you know, my future at the school. And, you know, I'm very yeah, fortunate. But the irony around that is, Hunter, that on Saturday week, I'm going to be having dinner with a dear old friend of mine who's became a colleague. And of course, when I was 14, I was in his office every day <laughs> on a report card at the world too. This, this is, it, it's, it's all part of what we do, isn't it? Oh, again, and maybe that's something we'll lean into, you know, the power of mentoring, right? And, you know, also that, you know, that masculine role model. And, of course, it doesn't have to be just the masculine role model that can really kind of challenge the young buck and pull out, you know, the best in in their personality and and their character, really. So kind of fast forward a few years, I I finished up at at Knox and um, just invested in experiences, you know, things that were outside of my my worldview that I grew up with. And I was very lucky to have family values that encouraged me to do that. And over the past few years, I've um, spent a lot of time down in, in Melbourne, where I really kind of found myself and was involved in an organization called the Foundation for Young Australians, where I uh, met the incredible Jan Owen, who I'm sure you two have I know very well, if not, or she's probably been on the potty, if not soon. Absolutely. Um, Serious one guess, mate. Serious one guess. There you go, yeah. Jan, and Jan was instrumental to me. You know, within two weeks, I was up in the Northern Territory, you know, helping run a young Indigenous leadership program. You know, two weeks later, I was working with a bunch of um, newly arrived refugees and asylum seekers and supporting them with employability programs. And in a year's time, I after that, I was running a, an incubator program for the country's top entrepreneurs who had a social or environmental purpose behind their business. And that really introduced me into the world of social change and philanthropy and, and the power of young people. And whilst all that was going on, I saw a lot of men in my life, you know, men who raised me start to struggle with their own mental health. And also at the other side of it, as I started to grow up, I started to hear stories of, you know, women who have raised me into the man I am today and heard their stories of abuse, misogyny. And um, uh, it just didn't make sense to me that the systems we have to deal with, whether it's mental health, gender equality or family violence, were geared around crisis management. And I just thought, why don't we go preventative? Why don't we go early intervention? And that was where the idea of the man cave came from, of sending in super diverse, relatable role models into high schools that just supported boys on their journey to manhood. 
And um, we've now worked with about 25,000 boys across the country, 300 schools on the waiting list. And our whole model is like really looking to how do we expand the development of a community, not just a little fly-in, fly-out program with a, a 45-minute PowerPoint presentation to fix masculinity. Um, that's not really what we're about. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll a, get to um, some questions around uh, the man cave and your work there. Uh, in a moment, but I just, I'm just interested in, in sitting here listening to you, Hunter. There's a real common narrative that's coming out really clearly, and that's one about justice. And I was going to use the word injustice, but I get a strong sense that Hunter Johnson's a, a person that, that wants to step into their own agency and be a person of action to create a more just and sustainable world, um, not only just for young men, uh, but for everyone. You shared so beautifully about the two worlds of mum and dad uh, and, and, you know, going from your primary school into, you know, a private school setting and its value to you. And then, of course, encountering particular people like a Jan Owen who, who continue this awakening with inside of you around, okay, these are the shortcomings of the world. How can we ensure that everyone has an equal footing and a head start? You spoke about crucible moments. Can you maybe share with our audience what some of those were that led you to this place where justice is, is such a strong thread in, in your story. Yeah, I, a huge role model in my life was my grandfather. He, um, uh, for many reasons, extraordinary man, um, you know, had an order of Australia for his service to communities and, and Australian business, but that's kind of like the, the, the headline um, that does not represent the true incredible nature of this man. And a great reflection, I think, is we were, when I was 10 years old, um, we had a family, um, I think a family wedding in South Africa. And I remember cruising around the South African countryside and, you know, moving through town to town. And we eventually stopped at a particular town, which was one of those kind of real shanty towns. And I remember I sprinted over to the kids and started kicking the soccer ball with them and was having the best time. And my grandfather called me over and into this building, which I was building probably a generous term. And I, um, as I walked in there, I realized it was uh, a hospital and I was walking with him hand in hand and I just was with him when he started to just speak to people who were working there, to the patients. And as we went to walk out, my mum kind of walked ahead, but he kind of pulled me back and he got out his checkbook, remember those things, and uh, wrote a check for $1,000 and put it into the tin donation jar and didn't say a word to anyone. And it was only when he passed away recently that, that I started to share about that story. And, you know, for me, that was a, a phenomenal example of um, someone doing the right thing for the right reason, not for the credibility or the significance that comes with it. And I think that's what I've learned around values-driven action. Sometimes those seeds that happen at our real young age take a little while for them to sprout. And I'm able to just look back on my life now and, and think about those moments that like at the time I didn't really understand, but they have been the seeds that really, really shaped my character. And, you know, little things like when I got, you know, I, I was, like we joked about at the beginning, but, you know, I was a pretty, I pushed boundaries in my, my high school years. And, you know, I remember once I got in trouble for bullying my best friend. I thought it was banter, but it was definitely bullying. And, and my dad sat me down and, and made me write down our family values, which, you know, I thought was a waste of time. I didn't understand it. And I look back at that now, and that's such an important moment in my development and my growth. And then a huge moment for me was a, a life-threatening injury on the rugby, fi rugby mm -hmm. field. You know, I wanted to go and play for Australia, kind of drunk the Kool-Aid of, 
you know, the, the Australian blokey identity for, for a long time, uh, but also felt like it was a performance, but I didn't know how to get out of that trap. Mm-hmm. And it was a life-threatening injury on the rugby pitch that ended up being a broken leg that had serious complications. It was metal rod, four screws, two skin grafts, two blood transfusions. But the nurse, you know, I distinctly remember the nurse coming in and saying, you know, there's a 95% chance you're not going to be able to run again. And again, I got left with a comment from my family saying, if you were that good at sport, imagine if you could push that to something a little more meaningful. Wow. And I was like, what? This is the worst thing to happen to anyone ever. Um, but, you know, again, one of those moments and, you know, maybe that was divine timing or something higher involved, but it really kind of nudged me five degrees. And I think that that five degrees is just compounded over time. And, you know, probably similar to the work that you two are involved in education. Once you see the incredible growth and authenticity and development of a young person into who they are, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible to witness. And, and that's why I do the work now. Listening to you, there's so much of a you stepping into not only contributor agency, but challenger agency. It's clear that that's something from, from a younger age. It's also a time where you're very curious. And uh, I'm interested in when you said a moment ago, you drunk the Kool-Aid about that kind of blokey culture, but it really never sat comfortably with you. And although you, like I did, went along with it uh, and we probably participated in it, it never sat comfortably with me either. Uh, I worked in the nightclub industry for for many, many years as a doorman. Lots of women uh, partying and uh, good times and all of that. And you just went along with it because it was the culture of, of the men. And the men were predominantly the door staff or, or the staff that worked in security. Um, and there was a particular you know, code and behavior, a lot that I'm not proud of because I simply allowed myself to be part of that, but it never felt right. When was that moment for you when you realized that you can still be a man, but you don't have to be consumed by the toxicity of some elements of masculinity? Yeah, it's really like we've been handed down this script. You know, I think that's it. It's a script that our our fathers and our grandfathers have inherited. And when I think about the origins and the history of that script, it's, you know, one and a half generations ago, they were coming from war. You know, and and what happens in war is extreme trauma and shell shock. And then in a society that is reintegrating back into, you know, a normal world post a, a major world trauma, the reality is society didn't have the tools and the infrastructure to support that reintegration of men who have experienced extreme trauma. And then so what happens there? Those father figures or those grandfather figures pass on that trauma into intergenerational trauma. And and that doesn't have to be, you know, massive, you know, there's a whole spectrum of trauma. You know, there's little T trauma, you know, big T trauma, and then there's evil, right? And I think, you know, in all of our life experiences, we've we've been exposed to men who are passing on their trauma, often unconsciously. And I think that sets um, the culture. And, you know, what do we celebrate? What do we recognise as the ideal masculine traits? You know, again, one and a half generations ago, post that World War era, was, you know, the madman era, you know, the, the, the guy who has the ciggies, who drinks the, you know, the, the scotch, who, you know, dresses well, is stoic, just deals within himself. And you know, there are absolutely times and that's, you know, that's okay and that's appropriate. But what's missing in that is the range, you know, the ability to be bringing some of those more traditionally feminine traits that are actually more of our humanistic traits. And, you know, I think for me, Really, it was um, the seed got cracked open on an experience I did with someone who I, I'm sure you two are familiar with, Dr. Anna Rubenstein, um, yeah. really played a big role for me. And I, I would say that my, my dad had role modeled the base level of this for me. And then I had to kind of go on my own little hero's journey to discover it. And 
I remember I did a uh, about 22 years old. I did a a camp um, which is effectively a rites of passage camp where he yeah. took us through the rites of passage process, not from an intellectual level, but actually through an embodied physical experience. And through that transformative weekend, I really kind of had this awareness of like I've got a lot I feel a lot and I've got a lot to say but I don't have the emotional vocabulary in which to articulate that and I haven't necessarily created the life that reflects my values I'm still caught between world that is going out that is about being with the footy guys that is about you know uh, earning my masculinity points for what of a better term mm. but really recognizing that there was whilst fun it was also quite hollow and you know I think I've heard it, you know, an author, David Brooks, talk about this around the, the second mountain. You know, that first mountain is about success, achievement, awards and significance. And then the, the, it's quite, quite hollow and then dropping down into the valley and the mess is where we really discover who we are. And, and I think in that adversity, we, we find parts of ourselves and then uh, often the journey is it's about love and service and contribution and community. And I think I was really lucky to kind of stumble on that quite early on and then just have been fortunate to surround myself with role models and, and elders that have, have guided my path and challenged me and, and given me opportunities. When I was the president of the uh, Victorian Catholic Deputies Association, we uh, would have an annual conference. At one of those conferences, we invited um, to come and present for the whole time. And uh, that was a, a very interesting experience to see adults, men and women, um, who are leading schools in so many ways, have to step into the mess and have to actually step into their own uh, identity and understand that their role as leaders wasn't just the transactions that they were undertaking every single day to make the operations of a school function, but the true essence of a school community, which is a microcosm of society, is about the transformation and finding opportunities to be significant. And can I tell you that that kind of rites of passage that you went through was a very similar kind of thing that he presented to us and stepped us through. And it really challenged people. It really challenged adults who had already formed particular fixed views about who they were and how they were going to live and how they were going to exist and how they were going to lead. But the ones that were open to its possibility were the ones that I kind of suspected were always open to the possibility of the young people in their care in, in a way that wasn't about the potential of their grade, but their possibility of their humanity. Hunter, can you give us the three-minute version only of what Man Cave is doing right now to create a world in which every young man has healthy relationships, realises this full potential and contributes to his community our core business is delivering face-to-face -face, uh, immersive programs with groups of young men, often aged 12 to 16, so in those first years of Australian high school. And we do that through very diverse male facilitators who we train like a high-performing sports team. And these are guys who range from, you know, backgrounds from, you know, personal backgrounds as to, you know, Aussie blokes who've grown up in the country to former refugees, to former child soldiers, to First Nations people, to young Islamic leaders. We really train them in, in everything from, you know, positive psychology to communication to storytelling to mythology to 
emotional intelligence to clowning. So we really look to kind of broaden their range of, of how they can walk into any group and understand group dynamics, the different archetypes they're going to encounter, and the energetics of constructing a, a, an environment where young men feel safe in when their whole life they, they have, they've often felt very psychologically unsafe. And we now look to work with their teachers and their parents to kind of have that whole community approach. So as I said, we the core business that we do is these full-day immersive multi-day programs with schools. Um, we have Man Cave Academy, which works with parents, teachers, and educators to continue the education journey of the boys. Over COVID, we've developed a new initiative in partnership with Movember, which is what we're calling Conscious Gaming. So our facilitators log on to the big gaming platforms, Twitch, where boys spend a lot of their time and boys actually log on after programs and they continue the conversations around whether it's mental health around relationships around um, any challenges that they're dealing with in a way that the way I would describe it is like the conscious Trojan horse so you know kind of you bring them in with the gaming and then you kind of subtly educate them in a way where they're entertained as well as informed and then underpinning that, we have um, our research and evaluation. So, you know, doing our own insights reporting, we're on the front line, kind of having access to the unfiltered attitudes and belief systems of boys. And so we now are looking to kind of extract that and look to um, support the education sector with what we're finding on the front line. Um, so that's that's the high level. Mancav's a charity, about 65% funded by philanthropy and high net worth individuals, and 35% of our income comes from fee-for-service, from schools or consulting, and we charge schools based on their socioeconomic status. So often the, the private schools will pay a premium and the regional or low socioeconomic schools will, will pay a subsidised rate. Several things to unpack from there. We think that what you're doing is absolutely at the top of the game and is industry leading in terms of what is happening to support boys to develop a positive sense of masculinity. You talk about the front line in a report that I did recently for, a, for another school that's sort of looking to um, completely reinvent its approach to character education, even though it is of itself a, a world leader, Scots College um, mm. in Sydney, the, the, the other Scottish school in Sydney, apart from Knox. We talked about the notion of the modern facts of life. What are the modern facts of life that are facing young men today? So I think there is more of a generational gap than ever before. Uh, and I even noticed this in my workforce. Um, you know, we, we Man Cave's got a team of about, uh, about 45 now. And, you know, guys who are coming in at, you know, early 20s and I'm, literally on a different planet to them which is kind of wild and then there's even bigger divides you, you, you should try being 52 <laughs> i don't know how it's hard you know there's it's 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 really quiet and it's it's moving quicker and faster than ever before and that's what i think is like must so challenging for you know teachers is how do you connect into a world that's emerging quicker than what we have access and exposure to as educators or role models um, so i think that the generational divide is getting bigger and quicker I think obviously the role that social media plays in that and will continue to play in that is a huge challenge for us, particularly with the metaverse coming, access to diverse role models. I think they're exposed to algorithms that show them whatever their attention gets gravitated and pulled to, which is often very shocking things on the internet. And we know that, you know, if you haven't seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, that's the homework. Go and watch it. Um, but I think that's something which it still astounds me how those big social media institutions are not held to more public account. The fourth is that, you know, young men want, there is a real strong sense of mateship embedded into Australian culture. And also what we're seeing is it's very shallow. 
So there's there's loyalty there, but they want more depth. They want to really know and they want permission to really know what's going on. And I think, you know, when boys are, when we focus on boys' strengths rather than their deficits, they're absolutely incredible. But often there's a rhetoric out there that young men are a problem to be solved. And what we see is they live into that because that's the story they're told. I'm glad that you mentioned that notion of the story that they're told. I have a view at the moment that, that in attempting to address um, men at their worst and, and, and the history of men at their worst, and we're going to come back to that at, at, at the moment, that we have a prevailing narrative in the world today that says that men are either Homer Simpson or Peter Griffin. So they're, or they're, so they're either fundamentally the objects of, of derision or that they're a menace in some way, shape or form. Um, we don't have a prevailing narrative about what positive masculinity or masculinities might be. We see those stories being constructed every day, but many of those stories are being constructed on social media, which is, as you said, a shallow two-dimensional avatar that only shows you at your glamorous best, you know? And, you know, it's, it's, it's like the old question, how are you? Well, nobody wants you to answer that question honestly, you know? Nobody wants you to say, you know, I'm just feeling really out of sorts today. And just before you came on, you know, I had a, I had a, I had an argument with such and such, and you know, I've got a little bit of a headache, and and no one wants that. They want to, how are you? I'm, I'm great, I'm fine, you know. So we live in this sort of public space where everything has to be just fine, but then lurking beneath it is a very powerful contrary narrative to masculinity. Nothing that's particularly positive at the moment that says what that positive masculinity is. So. I want to tease this out a little bit with you because I think you might understand this a little bit more than any of us really um, at the moment. You said earlier that we are handed down a script. I've heard you say that before. We had a cup of coffee last year where we were talking about that and you explained that notion to me about being handed down a script. So let's take that for a moment. We're handed down a script. We've got two or three generations of trauma amongst most men in Australia. And then, of course, for some men, particularly First Nations men, we've got many generations of even worse trauma going on. We take this script unthinkingly, et cetera, et cetera. How do we take this from, I guess I want to talk about pronouns with this question. How do we take this from I or me to you, to us? How do we take this from personal anecdote? So you feel as though you've been handed a script. You have a conversation with me. I go, oh, yeah, I think I was handed a script too, et cetera, et cetera. We can then take this narrative and push it along and it can become the new version of the Homer Simpson. In other words, it's just a powerful story that's being told that actually is damaging in and of itself. Like if you think of this notion, we were handed a script. That narrative says lack of agency amongst boys, that they started from behind the eight ball to start with. It's, you know, it's very powerful, but unless you contextualise it the way you did, and I think in your explanation, you, you talked about it very nicely. You know, there was this bit and that bit and that bit and we put it all together. How do we go from an individual anecdote to a collection of shared experience to the science of constructing masculinity? What are you doing in your research and development at the moment that is helping to take a whole lot of stories and find a way to put them together so that they represent complexity and balance of perspective rather than just another narrative that will end up being exploited by marketers and, and media people for their own sake. 
I feel like that's a TED talk in and of itself, but I'll, I'll have a crack in if there's any particular threads you want to go down, let's go down them. I think the first thing is that the, the, I want to pick up on the, um, the cultural narrative piece around individualistic societies versus collectivist societies. And I think the very much the Western world is, you know, the, the narrative we've been told is, you know, every, even the language or the phraseology, every man for himself, you know, it's very much a competition and conquest driven society, which, you know, has some massive cultural associations with things like capitalism. And, and I'm not ripping on capitalism there, but I'm just saying that's the incentive system in which we're operating it. It's about accumulation of more assets in which to achieve a better quality of life. Like that's kind of the, the story that, that is around us. It's a currency we have to, to engage with the world. Also, the patriarchy's involvement in that too. And again, I'm not having a conversation about patriarchy, but we have these cultural influences that govern and effectively create a social contract as to how we move through the world. And, you know, what we're seeing now through the evidence around us, whether it's, you know, mental health, whether it's through family violence, whether it's through the state of our environment, is that story that we use to organise ourselves is coming up to a point in time where we need to reimagine a new future. And for a long time, men have kind of taken the, the kind of steering wheel and said, this is the way to go. And we're starting to see an emergence of, you know, what we would traditionally call more feminine leadership traits. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean women, but in the feminine archetype, some of those, you know, it's, it's kind of rebranded every generation, whether you want to call it soft skills or, you know, emotional and social skills or feminine traits. Some of those more feminine traits, which are a more collectivist mindset, start to be embedded into how we um, relate to ourselves. What is our inner narrative to who we are? How do we relate to our peer groups and our friendship groups? What type of leaders are we inside the organization? How do we make decisions in increasingly complex circumstances that's not just about being right and giving certainty, but actually going, I don't know the answer. You know, we've got our best people working on the problems. They're going to come back to me. And this is incredibly challenging. We don't necessarily know where to move on from here. Then the second piece inside of that is, I think, exposing boys to diverse male role models who have range in their identity. And I use that phrase a lot, range in their identity. Guys who can be stoic, can be strong, can effectively you know, lay down their point of view, whatever the context is, but also can slow down and be in, in their inner feminine, can be nurturing, can ask for help, can you know, shed a, a raw emotion and vulnerability. Uh, and effectively finding ways to democratize role models like that in front of young men. And that's what we do in our programs. That's what we're looking to do through our, you know, our, our partnership with Movember that um, we push out through the digital channels. And then the thing that no one really wants to talk about that I've, I get astounded by is that, you know, this actually requires us as role models of these young people doing our own personal work and not personal work of the mind, personal work of our spirit and our character. And I think we can't think our way out of this challenge that we're about to move into. There is a, my belief is that we have a higher form of intelligence inside of us that comes from our gut. And the mind is very much around judging and assessing safety and making decisions. But the gut has a higher wisdom that I think is kind of the, the way we have to move forward. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of guys as well, that's kind of scary, you know, because again, my experience is a lot of guys have grown up in environments where they haven't felt psychologically safe. And so in order to trust in something higher order, to trust in others is incredibly scary. Um, but I, I think it's the only way we're going to have to move forward. And I think we have a huge amount to learn 
from the women in this world and also the most marginalized communities. Because often, my experience, there is so much wisdom in the oppressed. And unfortunately, it takes the minority to educate the majority at times. It would be really interesting if we could flip that, that the, those who are in privilege and power actually put the tools down and go and listen to those who have had some incredibly challenging circumstances. Okay, so I'm really enjoying what you're saying here. And to a certain extent, I think what you're doing is describing a process by which we go from an instinct to a sense of a personal story to a collective story. We're kind of getting there. How do we get this carried forward without it becoming just another political football, if I can talk about football when we're talking about stereotype traditional masculinity? Because this is the challenge, isn't it? Every good idea becomes reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced. And then it becomes used by people for a purpose. And then away we go. And then suddenly we've got this versus this. And and that's not helpful in education like becoming part of a polarised debate, you know, because then we just end up with a thing saying, well, there's progressive masculinity, but you have to buy into all these bits of it. And then on the other hand, there's Neanderthal masculinity, which now represents the resistance, you know, and then before you know it, you're getting people dressing up with buffalo horns storming the capital. Most men don't want to live on the extremes. How do we help them to find a space in the middle where they can take all this and they can feel as though they're connected and feel as though... It's not just a surface narrative. Oh, such a good question. Um, again, I feel like I could go down various rabbit holes, but I'll just start with uh, my first reflection is, I think that's the biggest challenge is how do, we, how do we make character development accessible to the mainstream male? I think that as a, as a vision, I think that's fascinating because we are in a time of identity politics. And, you know, we also need to be really conscious of us as men who, you know, on this conversation right now, have certain le- levels of privilege and unconscious bias that are just present in our lives, some that we're conscious of, some that we're unconscious of. And that's a reality that we need to be responsible for. And the, the really interesting challenge, I think, is when men wake up to a little bit of the history of their own, of the, the, the collective narrative of masculinity, when they understand that and then they slow down enough to really just question the social conditioning which they've inherited, often they have that moment of awareness where things just wake up a bit. They get to see a little broader and wider. And then the real question for me is now what? Cool, you've got this awareness. You can't unsee it now. Now what? What are we going to do about it? How are you continuing to educate yourself? But again, like, you know, we, we, we live in, in such divided times and, and the spectrum of masculinity is so broad. And, you know, it, it's so challenging to tell, you know, a white <laughs> you know, middle-aged male that you're privileged, you know, and these guys are going, my life's been pretty bloody hard to me. You have no idea what I've been through. My struggle is always relative. You know, this has happened to me, this has happened to me, and suddenly now I'm privileged. I've worked exceptionally hard, but they have no lived or felt experience of, of another or they haven't heard a story or they have no emotional connection that is relevant to them. And it's the classic story of like men who have a daughter and they suddenly care about gender equality. You know, it's suddenly it becomes emotionally relevant to them. That's the point that I'm trying to make because men don't like a word such as privilege being used as a weapon against them. Mm. But the reality is each one of us was I mean, I you know, brought up by my parents to be grateful for what I had and to be humble around it. Now, that, that was their way of trying to educate me about privilege. You know, go back two or three generations in my family, there's, you know, Polish Jews running from the pogroms 
and Irish Catholics running away from the British, um, mm. there wasn't enormous amount of privilege relative to what I have right now. And that privilege was gained in recent generations, largely a byproduct of the hard work of my parents, a whole lot of luck and, and the education that I had along the way. But I'd be foolish to turn around and sit there and, and say, well, there's no privilege in my life. But again, it's, it's how you see it. If it's used as a weapon against you, mm. um, you're not going to respond that well to it, are you? I love what you're saying about character development too, mate. I could talk so much more about this, but I know that my colleague has a question brewing. I do, I do. I've been listening to this really important conversation and uh, I agree with you, Hunter, this could be uh, an entire series just on this particular topic. You shared with us so much just then about your discovery and awareness of working with over 25,000 young men across this country. You've also given us a context of the sign of our times and, and the world in which we're living in and how we need to continue to support young men to step into their own agency and be comfortable with whatever type of masculinity they're presenting and then it's okay. And of course, empowering young men to call out things that are not okay. And that's another important component that I've learned along my journey in education, particularly working with young men, is giving them the space and the permission to step into or creating that so that they feel safe enough to call out when they need to call it out. I'm interested, and I'm sure our listeners are, what have you learned about yourself as a man and your responsibility to future generations from working with over 25,000 young people? I think the most important thing is I just think there is no greater responsibility for me than to leave the world better than what I inherited. And I don't hear our leaders who are responsible for significant decisions that impact the well-being of our entire countries, companies and communities thinking through that lens. And, you know, the, I come back to my grandfather. He passed away about two years ago planting a tree on a 40-degree day um, so that there would be more shade for the grandkids. And, you know, for me, first of all, that is an outstanding way to die. And secondly, you know, there is an old adage that says society grows great when old men plant seeds for trees under whose shade they will never sit. You know, and I'm like, that is wonderful. That is beautiful. And how do we create more of that? And so I think for me, whilst we are working, or whilst I am working with young men, it's not just about young men. It's about the relationships that they're going to have, the men in their communities, the positions of leadership that they take but also the family people they're going to be most importantly. Given my life experience, the skills and the opportunities I've had, I just am endlessly affirmed that this is the most important thing that I can focus on right now. Um, and I think that the balance of this for me is, you know, as an individual going through this journey, I'm not just running programs, I'm building a business too, mm -hmm. you know. And so, um, you know, we've got, you know, up to 45 staff. You know, I've also launched this new men's personal care brand um, called Stuff that funds the charity. So I'm trying to find as many different avenues to create an ecosystem of healthy male role models that makes it relatable, accessible, um, and not virtue signaling or not showing how woke we are, but just normalising that as the status quo. I just really hope that, you know, for my kids, that I've developed myself into enough that I can be, you know, a father figure that they're proud of. That's, that's, I'm even feeling emotion talking about that right now. Good. That's, Good. that's, you know, that's the most important thing I think for me. And, and again, coming back to just the, the privilege it is to, to, to be in, 
environments where young men step into authenticity often for the very first time is something wonderfully profound and, and that's really why I do it. How, how can we work in an allyship towards uh, supporting young boys to become young men who take their place in society, not as simply takers, but active contributors, not only for themselves and the places they serve uh, and the planet, but of course, the other. There's no doubt, Phil and I would agree that there's there's a need for systematic change in our education uh, a curriculum, particularly toward character development and, and how we, we foster that. I know that um, your organisation, The Man Cave, recently had uh, a report that you published and there were five key findings that came out of that particular report. One was uh, start with yourself. Another was about being the role model, uh, which you have so articulated, so beautifully articulated with us throughout this entire conversation. Another was about getting involved in their world. So that's about making it relevant and understanding where they're at. Uh, and, and of course, creating opportunities for the deepening of friendships, because you mentioned earlier about this kind of surface level of, of their mateship or their brotherhood. But then there was another one, and that was about getting curious about their experience. And for me, that's an interesting one, because that's about having a deep consciousness of where they're at. How can we help people in education shift a curriculum from a lot of stuff that's about measuring productivity to a place where we are inherently curious beings and have a deep consciousness of the other's experience and supporting them in stepping into their own identity so they can craft their own stories. So it moves from productivity to the space of being significant. Yeah, really that shift I hear is about being what we've traditionally grown up as successful into a life of significance and purpose. Um, for me, the starting point is creating environments where young men um, can effectively take off the mask they're wearing and start to open up and really see that as the training ground for understanding their emotional selves, their inner lives, their, their, their own character. But the most important part of that is they get to see other people's lived experiences and hear stories of those upon which they've never really seen. And then, you know, the second piece is, you know, for me, it's the, you know, the ecological approach. You've got to start at the individual, go to the community and then go to societal structures. And I think we really do need, you know, a multi-pronged approach to doing this. And I think, again, I keep coming back to this. We can't solve this problem with just our minds. There has to be a deeper wisdom. The world is changing faster and faster every time, every day. And this is just not a problem we're going to think our way out of. And if we are, you know, it's the classic Einstein quote, you, we need a higher level of consciousness than that which created the problem. And, you know, I think for me, the most important thing is creating environments where particularly teachers have the opportunity to develop themselves. But the catch is it's kind of scary doing your own personal work. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're moving into already our society is designed for so much pleasure seeking. And that, you know, any sense of feeling uncomfortable is often avoided, whether it's through taking tablets or, you know, getting addicted to the variety of vices that we have. We spend so little time with our actual selves, not distracted. And, and that's hard to, to progress in a way that's actually meaningful and sustainable. And again, for me, I come back to what I shared earlier. There is, we are sitting on an absolute gold mine with our First Nations people. Absolutely. There is 
you know, what other, <laughs> there's a, a literally a, a group of people whose longevity of life is, you know, arguably or inarguably, you know, been here for, for the longest in our kind of human recorded history. And well, we're not learning from them, you know, let alone recognizing their existence in our society. So I think that there's massive, massive lessons to be learned there on and really challenging what our notions of progress are. Um, and then, yeah, I just really want to come back. We need to invest more in our teachers. It's just, it is crazy stress that I see teachers under. And I know I'm talking to two masters of the game, but, you know, it is crazy the lack of effective professional development that teachers get. Um, it's crazy how hard it is from our perspective at Man Cave sometimes that the, like how hard it is to get um, certain school structures on side with what's required for the development of their their young men um, and then the most important thing of it all is it's got to start at home you can't outsource your child's moral and character development to a school system you have to be the role model at home you have to demonstrate accountability responsibility um, you know teachable moments how you deal with adversity getting curious about the inner world of a young person and knowing that your world was not the same but also you went through that experience what was your experience like and being honest and sharing that I'm going to ask you really one last question and it's going to be really short. Do you ever catch yourself sometimes getting pulled back into a blokey mentality? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Um, it's probably the summary. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. And part of me loves it. Part of me absolutely loves it. Um, I love being around blokey culture. I love, I'm a massive jock at heart. Um, you know, sometimes I love talking absolute banter that is just complete nonsense and you know, and, and when I catch up with my mates that I went to school with, I don't talk to them about this. You know, part of me is really scared to. Um, but this is, you know, I, this is where I get energy. This is where I get enjoyment from. It's where I really ultimately find fulfillment in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a big journey for me is, um, you know, not making the world that I grew up with or those older legacy friendships wrong. They are what they are. And, you know, I think the most important thing is I just continue to be myself throughout it, whatever world I, I step into. Hunter, thank you for an absolutely fantastic conversation. I think I think um, there's two things that I think that we would talk about. Everything that you're talking about, the character process. The first is that that wrestling between the inner self and the and the expectation of the world around you. You know, I think the the earliest story we have around that is is come from the Book of Genesis. You know, they, they, mm. these are old old stories, and the answers are old old answers as well too. It's just that every generation sees those answers with fresh eyes and that's because we're wrestling with ourselves all of the time and we're wrestling with the people around us who are coming up with different answers when we see the wrong answers there's something about the notion of a man standing up um, and that doesn't say of course that women can't stand up as well too but but we're not having that conversation today We're, we're talking about men and the notion of men standing up and doing the hard work of attending to their own character and and doing the work of their families too it's an inspiration to listen to you. Thank you for the work that you and your team are doing. Good luck with that venture. Good luck with stuff as well too. There's a whole conversation that we can have one day about social entrepreneurship as well too because that's of extreme relevance. You are a game changer because you don't ask permission for this sort of stuff. You stand up and you say, you know, there's a thing that needs to be done. I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to help other people talk about it along the way. And if we keep talking about it, and we do it in the right way, we're going to end up with some science around this that will help people generate really, really good answers in time. So thank you.
Yeah, there's so many, so many lessons from today and it's just been an awesome conversation, Hunter. Phil is absolutely right about you being a game changer and, and stepping into that space and not waiting. You're, you're a great example of having the courage to lead uh, and, and to help us be prepared to awaken a new level of consciousness uh, that we actually really need in today's world. One that, that gives it, make, ensures that we're fully attentive to the encounters that we have with ourselves, with others and the people that we relate to, and of course, the lives that we lead. So thank you very much for being on our series. Uh, we really appreciate it. No doubt um, we're expecting a box of stuff in the mail. Is that right, Phil? We, we'll be seeing that shortly. You know? Oh, no, 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 no. What we're going to do, and all our <laughs> listeners are going to do, we're going to go out and buy stuff right. so we can support the Man Cave program. Yeah, no, I, I would have thought I would have thought that uh, stuff was below your price point anyway, Phil. Um, you'd be. I'm very, very happy to use stuff. <laughs> Any yeah, type of stuff. We've uh, we've developed stuff in partnership with the leading uh, executives from ESOP. Who uh, so oh. um, we've got the ex general manager, ex you know head of product and innovation. So we uh, the product is of great standard for, for you Phil but I just also want to say massive thank you to you both you know for the work you do not only on this podcast but just for fast tracking our education system and and evolving it really right now particularly preparing young people uh, and those who work with young people is is for me the most important job in the world right now so I just want to say thank you to you both and yeah I really appreciate the opportunity to be here Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.